Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was in my marriage for 30 years. We were together for 32, and I've been divorced for about three and a half years. And we have an amazing 25-year-old daughter, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Manisa. Hello, everyone. I'm Manisa, and I've been in a neurodiverse relationship for eight years, been married for six And I discovered that my husband was on the spectrum when I was in school to become a board certified behavior analyst. So I am really excited about this episode because we have heard so many different people's stories about their relationship, their neurodiverse relationship and how they're navigating that relationship. And even some stories about how they chose to end those relationships. But Mona, I really want to talk about you and your newer diverse relationship that you had for over 30 years. Every time I say that, it is just, it blows my mind. (laughs) That is literally half of your life. Yes, actually more than half of my life. Yes. I'm not 60 yet. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I know you you listeners have heard Mona reference before that uh, Mona found me out in the newer diverse landscape um, by putting out a post on Instagram asking if anyone wanted to share their story. And I immediately reached out to her and we did a zoom meeting and she interviewed me. And while I was telling my story, she had an epiphany that maybe I would be a good fit to Mm -hmm. co-host the podcast. And I was not looking for that, but I'm so thankful (laughs) that that's exactly what happened because we have come in contact with some amazing people and Mona you are also one of those amazing people because this is your vision this is your dream you started the podcast as a way to be able to kind of tell your story and to let other people know they're not alone so let's just go all the way back to the beginning so (laughs) um, how old were you when you first uh, met your ex so we met when we were 21 And we moved in with each other when we were 22. And then we got married at 23. And I'll be 58 next month. We're recording this in December. So I'll be 58 in January. And I think what's so important, Manisa, first of all, I think this is great that we're doing this because this is the last episode of season two. We start season three in January. And you're right. This was my dream because my ex... And I, I believe we're soulmates. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I think, were the loves of each other's lives. We grew up together. We experienced so much together. We experienced so many amazing things, but we had so many challenges that nobody outside of us knew about. Mm-hmm. And I think that that happens with a lot of couples, but I will tell you, we fell in love very quickly. Probably within a month of dating, I knew I was falling for him and he knew he was falling for me. And I will never forget this. We were on the balcony of his parents' home and it was Noche Buena, which is Christmas Eve for um, Hispanics. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, I wish you could read my mind. And he said, I can. And he said, I said, what am I thinking? And he said, you're thinking you're falling in love with me. And I was like, yes, oh my God, I can't believe you just read my mind. He goes, I'm falling in love with you too. Aww. So that, that was two very naive 21-year-olds, yeah. So how did you guys actually meet? Like, what were the, the circumstances, <laughs> the situation? 
Yep. So we actually worked at the same location and talk about fate. Cause I, I do believe that there's a movie. Um, I think it's called sliding doors. Mm-hmm. And I was working as a preschool teacher and I hated my job. And so I was looking for another job and I found a job as a bookkeeper and a receptionist for, it was a glass installation company. And I went and interviewed, they hired me on the spot and he was the foreman there. And, oh. and that's how we met. And what was so interesting, Manisa, I knew something was different about him from the beginning. It was me and like three other women, older women, and everybody else was a, a guy and mostly Hispanic men. And all the guys were flirting with me because, you know, I was 21 and, mm-hmm. you know, um, they were flirting with me. They were teasing me, but my ex wasn't. He oh. was stoic. He was quiet. Um, he was either smoking a cigarette, chewing gum or chewing a straw mm-hmm. <laughs> and hardly said a word to me. So you yeah. thought he was like this mysterious man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Until, until one day um, I went back to the, to the factory area where they were doing the, making the windows and I decided to talk to him. There was something about him that I was drawn to. And I started talking to him at Manisa. And for some reason, he told me he wrote songs, lyrics mm. to songs. And I'm like, hmm, there's more to this guy. And I said, well, can I see some of your lyrics? And he's like, yeah. And I don't remember if he had them there that day. But he did show me um, some of his lyrics and I was blown away. I mean, it was poetry. It was so amazing. And wow. then... Yeah. And then we started talking and it turns out that he had read a book that I had just finished reading called Out on a Limb by Shirley MacLaine. Mm-hmm. You know that book? Yes, so, very well. So, and it's about past lives and mm-hmm. it's about spirituality. I'm like, there's something about this guy. I don't know what it is. And then I basically asked him what he did on the weekends for fun. And he told me he would go out to, you know, clubs or whatever. And I said, well, I have a place that I go to by my house. Would you be interested in going? And he said, yes. And we went out and that was the beginning of our relationship. Wow. That is really (laughs) incredible that you meet this person who seems kind of standoffish and unapproachable and mysterious. Uh But yet once you get to know him and start pulling back these layers, you found, you find out that he's very interesting and has a lot of uh, really special interest at like music, not only music, but like writing lyrics. Yes. And so you guys set out on this love affair and yes. you decide to get married. So talk about um, leading up to the marriage, like the proposal. What was that like? Oh, my gosh. It's so funny because I knew that we needed to live together before we got married. Okay. Because he had never lived on his own. And he came from a very traditional Hispanic family where his mother did everything. She cooked, she cleaned, changed his bed, all that stuff. He mm-hmm. had never done any of that stuff. So we lived together for a year and um, he was a really good student. I taught him how to cook and clean and we did everything, you know, like that Mm -hmm. together. And then I told him it was time to get married. I had to tell him. (laughs) Um, I said, it's, it's time for us to take our relationship to the next level. And I told him exactly what I wanted. I wanted to be proposed to on a trip. Mm-hmm. I told him that I wanted to have him make the ring for me, have him design it because he was very creative. Mm-hmm. And we had a friend who knew a jewelry designer and he did that. Um, and we went to Mexico and he brought the ring with him. 
and he proposed to me in Mexico and it was so romantic and it was so amazing. And he followed all the directions I gave him. He followed them all. To wow. The <laughs> and, you, and you know, what's interesting, of course, this, this podcast is about neurodiverse relationships. So that means that one partner is on the spectrum. Right. So hindsight is 2020 looking back on that. Now I could, I could almost, uh, assume Mona you tell me if I'm right that the fact that he followed everything that he told you to do you were thinking then with your 20 year old mind wow he really loves me he gave me exactly what I wanted yeah and not understanding that you know part of the autistic brain is not having to figure out all these social things and having that template laid out for him yes (laughs) yes exactly so here we were 22 years old and I, I was, I didn't realize what I was doing, but I mm-hmm. was, I was helping him navigate the social world that yes. we were about to go into. I did the same thing with our wedding too. You know, I um, let him tell me what he wanted as far as food at the wedding. And if there's anything in particular he wanted um, and he let me do it all. He mm-hmm. had no desire to be involved in any of the planning. Okay. Now, what was interesting, Manisa, is, um, and again, looking back, you can have 20-20 vision, right? Yes. So he had one friend at the wedding, just one. And I had met this man, I think, twice during our two years together. And maybe I saw him once after we were married. I had 25 friends. (laughs) You know, I had all these people I worked with, as well as friends that I had had for years. And we would go out on double dates, but we always went out with my friends. Um, and he actually had his brother-in-law at the time as his best man. And I chose to have my sister and his two sisters. So we would have the whole family. But, you know, looking back, he only had one friend at the wedding. Isn't and that it? Did you find that strange at the time? Mom? You just thought, you know, he's a really reserved kind of quiet guy. What were your thoughts about that? That's exactly what I thought. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, he um, kind of is a maybe a little bit of an introvert. He yes. Keeps, keeps to himself. And we were having so much fun that it didn't matter if he didn't have friends because we had my friends. Yes. And when we would get together with my friends, um, you know, he could be very funny and cordial and whatever. But now looking back, I realize that... Um, I think that took a toll on him sometimes. Right. He was on his best, you know, behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and they never saw the things that I saw when we came home or, right. you know, at other times during our relationship. Yeah. So at what point in your relationship, like including the dating relationship, did you have some type of idea that mm, something is really different about this guy? Yeah. So, um, when we were first dating, you know, this was before cell phones or the ability to text. And we lived in two different counties. So it was actually long distance to call each other on the phone, which just to say that out loud seems so weird. I know. And, and he was often late when we would get together. And I, I couldn't understand it. Um, and also he would say that he would do something and he wouldn't follow through. Okay. And those, you know, but I was 21 at the time, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd been in relationships before with guys, but it was, you know, three or four months here or there. And I really loved him. So I think I overlooked a lot of things. 
I also mm-hmm. remember that our communication was very, very, very different. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk through everything. Um, I wanted to talk about my day, whatever. And he just wasn't like that. Right. Um, it took a lot for me to get that out of him. And then when he would share, I really enjoyed it. But I don't think he necessarily enjoyed it the way I did. Right. And I, I remember before we were going to move in with each other, um, I think we met at a Denny's. I, I, this just came back to me. And we had a conversation. I think I was probably in tears. And I was like, you know, if this is going to work, these are the things that I need. And he agreed to it. Okay. Um, And so we ended up moving in together. The thing is, after four years of marriage, Manisa, I wanted to divorce him. Okay. And the reason being is that we were in some ways very, very different, even Mm -hmm. though we were so compatible in other ways. The differences were mostly around communication. (laughs) <laughs> and what's in, yeah, and what's interesting about that, Mona, is that you, at the time, if I'm right, you had no understanding of autism at all. No, none. So you just thought we're just contentious. We're just always arguing, and I'm, I want a divorce because we're just not compatible. It's just not going to work. Yeah, I and I don't know how much we were arguing, arguing as much as on different pages regarding our emotional and communication needs. Okay. Okay. So um, he would shut down. Now looking back, he would shut down. Mm-hmm. And the person that I would oftentimes see him as when we would get together with other couples or with family was this very social person. And I didn't see that when we would get home Uh over and over again in addition he would um tell me he was going to do something with his uh career path or his career choices and then he wasn't able to follow through or he would try and then he would give up Uh or um he would ask for help in communicating with somebody or how to write an an email or, um, you know, a phone call or whatever. What I realize now is the executive function skills. Yes. That came naturally to me were at times challenging for him. And again, this is all part of being on the spectrum, but we didn't know. We didn't know at the time. Yeah. So Mona, you mentioned that four years in, you were considering divorce. What changed your mind? Mm, that was a tough one, Manisa. Um, I told him that I wanted a divorce and he had a major, major, I would say meltdown. And just thinking about it, it it's not fresh in my mind because it was 1991, but, um, he literally started crying, begged me to stay. He said he would do whatever he could to change. Um, and I sat there watching a man that I loved with all my heart. I felt was my soulmate. I still do feel he's my soulmate. I have learned so much because I was with him. Um, and I was a social worker, loved him, thought, okay, I'm going to give him a second chance. You know, it's not that I don't love him and I couldn't watch him hurting so much. And it didn't matter that I was hurting or I felt like I wasn't getting my needs met in the relationship. Um, 
and I said, okay. And, and the reason it happened, I think at four years of marriage is we had agreed that after five years of marriage, we would have a child. And so I knew that the trajectory we were on was not going to be the right trajectory to us for us to be the best co-parents. Yes. Because, yeah, because financially I was on a career path that was taking me to, you know, promotions and better jobs and whatever. But he was, the easiest way to say it is he was underemployed. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So you were smart enough to plan a family um, as a young 20 something year old, which, you know, a lot of young people don't don't do that. Uh, The family just kind of happened. So kudos to you. Um, for being able to say, you know what, I want a family and then we're actually going to plan when to have this child. Mm-hmm. I think I think knowing how things have worked out now, that was just so wise to have. Jonah, you, you all, you, you thought about getting a divorce because of your communication differences and then you reconsidered that and took that off the table and then now you guys are moving forward with your marriage and part of that moving forward is the two of you decided that year in, in the fifth year, I think you would possibly plan a family. So tell me about that. What, what, what happened after the, the deciding to recommit to the marriage and move forward? Tell me about planning your family from that point. Yeah. You know, looking back, it's so interesting. You can have 2020 vision because my ex had said when we started getting serious that he wanted to wait five years after we got married to have a child. And so those five years turned into nine, Manisa. Mm. And every time I asked him or wanted to talk about having a child, um, he would want to delay it, delay it, delay it, delay it. And I'm not sure what he was waiting for. You know, I don't think he ever really told me. I don't remember that. I don't think, and my daughter knows this, so if she hears this, it, it won't be a surprise to her. I don't think he maybe should have had a child. When we first got together and started getting serious, I told him that I wanted two children. He said he wanted none. Uh And I said, well, I'm the wrong person for you. And then he backtracked in that same conversation and said, well, then I'll have one, but we have to wait five years after five years of marriage before we have a child. Uh So we both agreed to that Two, you know, silly 21 year olds or 22 year olds naive. I'm thinking, oh, okay. He changed his mind in three seconds. I'm okay. Uh Well, no, I don't think he ever wanted to have children. And he probably shouldn't have not that he isn't very loving and was a wonderful co-parent and all that stuff. But, you know, I wonder how many men who didn't know they were on the spectrum, if they could go back and not have children, not because they don't love them, but because of all that it requires of them. I wonder if they would change their mind and not have their children or child, Uh you know? So we waited nine years and um, I'll never forget when we were in the delivery, well, not in the delivery room, where we were at the hospital, um, you deliver in the same room that you're in. And mind you, this was 25 years ago. Uh-huh. And um, I had 102 fever. I had an infection. Oh, I no. had, yeah, they had, they had induced me. It was horrible. And my mother was there with me. And so was my ex. 
and he didn't exactly know what to do. Now, if the roles were reversed and he was in bed and had the infection and everything, I would have been talking to the doctor like every 15 minutes saying, you know, mm-hmm. we got to get this baby out. Well, he didn't know what to do. And my mother had to take over. And um, I think it was very traumatic for me, but it was very maybe confusing for him. We had gone to Lamaze class, we had prepared, we had planned, and nothing went the way we thought it would go. Uh Um, And we actually, my daughter jokes about it, she actually had to be vacuum suctioned out of me. Wow. Uh, Yeah, they couldn't do a C-section because I had 102 fever and probably would have died. But that was overwhelming for him. And I remember when when, uh, Rachel, my daughter, came out, the doctor asked if my ex wanted to hold her and he said, let the grandmother hold her first. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I think it was so overwhelming to him Yes, that he gave my mother a chance to hold Rachel first and then he took Rachel. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, he was the best parent or co-parent of a baby. He was... Um, he didn't know what to do, but he was a quick learner and he, it was almost like he was a, a soldier. And I think he said this to me, you know, when he knows what to do, he can do it with mm-hmm. almost a hundred percent perfection. Right. You know? And when, when our daughter was young, he knew when she needed to be fed, he knew how to rock her to get her to bed. And if she didn't go to bed, cause she had colic, he would drive her around in the car for hours if he needed to. He was a soldier. He mm-hmm. was an absolute soldier. And when he would take her out for the day, he would he would uh, fill the diaper bag with like 20 diapers and, you know, 15 um, pacifiers and <laughs> the the bibs and, and the the bottles and everything. And he would have enough stuff for a week and he was always prepared. Mm-hmm. And it made him feel really comfortable. And and she got the best from her father, especially for the first five or six years. Yes. It was really, really good. Yeah. So I know with having a new baby, there's a lot of unpredictability because, yes. you know, the baby set the schedule for everybody, for yes. the entire household. And I know a lot of times, you know, being um, autistic, you have you live by those structures and those routines, the things that you can depend on every day that happens the same time every day. So how how was he able to adjust to that? I think he created the routine for them. Mm-hmm. And I I looking back, um, she thrived. Our daughter thrived under his routine. I was much more. um you know, flexible, would take her to the park or mm-hmm. would take her on a play date or whatever. He didn't do play dates. Okay. He, he kept to his structure. There was routine. The first time I saw him a little um, challenged was when she wanted to have a play date. He could drop her off with friends, but he couldn't stay. Yes. Um, if there was a birthday party, I was the one who had to take her. If there was something going on in her classroom, I was the one who volunteered. I was the one who met with all the other parents. Any field trip, I remember the first field trip he went on with her and her class. Um, one of the kids ran away. They went to a museum. 
he came home from that field trip, Manisa, and he said, I will never, ever go on another field trip again. And he didn't. It was too, it was too stressful. Yes. It was yeah. Too- like worrying about that kid that ran away and all those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. It was too much for him. Yeah. So here you guys are, you're parenting, you're just trucking right along with, you know, with your, with your life. And now your child is no longer a toddler, but, you know, moving into like, you know, becoming a preteen and, and those years can be crazy. And so how did the relationship change as far as parenting a little person and now, you know, parenting a teenager? Because, you know, teenagers have their own lives. They, they want to do their own things. They're, they're more connected to their peer group. So how did you all adjust to that? It was, it was a major change because Rachel and her daddy were really close when she was young. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel will always say she was a mini version of her daddy. Mm-hmm. They, they even looked alike. Um, and so they, he taught her all his special interests and she had his undivided attention when she became her own person, like in the older years of elementary school and then in middle school, their relationship started to change a lot. And I don't think he even realized it. Um, she, she would ask him to do things for her. And if he asked, I mean, if she asked, he would do it. Mm-hmm. But he didn't volunteer And I used to say to him, you know, why don't you engage with Rachel? You know, why don't you ask her if she wants to do this with you? And he would say to me, if she wants it, she'll ask me. Mm -hmm. And and I had to say to him, no, that's not the way parenting works. Um, You engage with your child. I mean, I say this, you know, tongue in cheek now, but I really didn't understand why this wasn't coming natural to him because the first probably maybe seven, eight years it was a different relationship than it was after she maybe was eight. Um, And what happened is they started growing further apart. I don't know that she noticed Mm -hmm. it as much as I did. Right. Because she had her peer group. She had a friend. She was involved in band and other activities. And she wanted to be with her friends when she was 10, 11, 12. She didn't really want to be with her parents. Right. But I noticed it. And go ahead. Did you all differ on parenting styles? Yes. Um, He did not want her to ever see us fighting. Okay. He ran from conflict. Um, He didn't want to have any discussions that involved conflict with her or with me. He never disciplined her ever, ever, ever. Um, He kind of just wanted to be her friend. And if she needed him and she asked for something, he would be there. And I was the one who had to discipline. I was the one who had to teach her life skills. He didn't do that. He taught her about subjects that he was interested in. And he taught her about music and he taught her about astronomy. And that was fantastic because those are things I knew nothing about. And she's very knowledgeable about all that. Right. But he, he did not teach her social skills. That, okay. was, that was mom's job. Okay. <laughs> and again, this you were into like, you know, it's been more than 10 years now that you guys have been together and you're, you guys are still having these communication issues. Is that correct, Mona? Yes. yes. So you're not making any headway. You just keep, you know, going back and forth and back and forth with uh, misinterpretation, miscommunication. So at one point, did you 
Did, did you guys ever sit down and try to like develop a plan for how you would communicate? Did you seek therapy? Like what yes. did you do to address it? Yes, we went to therapists several times, but every time we went for therapy, we thought that one or two sessions after one or two sessions, because I was a social worker, we could talk about this and work it out ourselves. Well, Mm -hmm. that didn't work very well. Um, What we had is the same type of argument or the same argument over and over again. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest dividing place for us was when um, this was in 2003, 2004, my ex, I think we were about to turn 40. My ex decided he wanted to work on a film he had written or a script he had written. He wanted to make it a short film. And I said, take a year off, take a year off and do this. This is your dream. I want you to make it happen. And I could support us. Well, that I have to say, looking back, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. That was the biggest mistake I made because mm-hmm. what happened is he was able to thoroughly engage in his special interests, his deep, deep interests, which, you know, are film and music and creating. And so he quit his job. He did this and he was supposed to go back to work after a year. Well, at, you know, a year, I'm like, have you looked for a job? Do you have a new job? No, no, no. And he did not go back to work for almost eight years. Wow. Yeah. How did you hold out for that long, Mona? I know. So this is this is the challenge, Manisa, and I hear this from a lot of folks that are in my support group. You hope that things are going to change. Mm-hmm. And and in 2005 when he was supposed to go back to work, my dad died and so did his dad. Oh, that's so, hard. Yeah, we were dealing with that and our daughter was only 9. And I knew, Manisa, I did not want to be a single parent. Mm -hmm. I knew I could do it financially, but emotionally, I couldn't do it. I think I was, you know, in the beginning of perimenopause, I was having um, anxiety because there was so much responsibility on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I remember having to call the ambulance once or having him call the ambulance. I thought I was having a heart attack. There was a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I kept having hope that he would find a job, that he would find a job. We had to take care of my mother who was sick and um, he didn't, he didn't find, or he didn't look for a job. Um, He went back to work in, in it, which was a field he had worked in for about two months. And he had, um, I guess I would call it um, like an anxiety attack. And felt felt that his employer was asking him to do things he wasn't comfortable with. I think he had been out of work so long, he was really having trouble transitioning back into Mm -hmm. a job. Mm -hmm. And the only reason, Manisa, he went back to work in 2011 is because I threatened him with divorce. And I said to him, if he did not go back to work, I actually said it to him in 2009, that I would divorce him. It still took him another about 15 months to find a job. Uh And when he found that job, he tried to go from like 40 hours to 25 hours. Because (laughs) again, the transition was really hard for him. But we needed the money and I wanted him to work full time. And I, this is horrible. And I, you know, feel sorry for any couple that is neurodiverse that maybe has to go through this because they don't know they're neurodiverse. I kept threatening him with divorce. Mm -hmm. I said, you need to work. 
you need to work. First of all, you need to get a job and then you need to stay working full time. Otherwise I'm leaving you. Can you imagine the stress that I, I caused him? <laughs> you, you know, it's, and I, I get it, but, but, but just take being neurodiverse out of the equation. I don't think that that would be an unreasonable request for any relationship. Like, Hey, you've been unemployed for eight years. Right. Like if we're in a partnership, you got to pull your weight here. If there right. are no known, you know, physical disabilities, like you physically can work, right. then you should. So I right. get it. Yeah. I, I, I get it. But I understand knowing what you know now, you didn't know that then knowing what you know now that he was, you were in a newer diverse relationship. We both know that that only adds to the anxiety. Right. But you know, you can't, be held accountable for something that you didn't know. Right. It was not your intention to cause him anxiety or to trigger him. No. Do you think Mona, that the social aspect of working with other people was also a part of him not wanting to go back? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I will tell you, I think one of the things that drove me to the separation was he became so negative he did not like his job, but I don't even think it was the work as much as the responsibility. He mm -hmm. knew he knew he could not fail. He knew he could not fail. We live in a in a city where the opportunities are not great, but we also live in a college town where somebody can hire, you know, the college student for minimum wage. And why should they hire somebody that's older and have sure. to pay them more? Right. So what happened, Manisa, is he started going in later and later to his job and staying after the store closed. Mm -hmm. So he would go in at 2.30 or 3, even though the store opened at 10, and he would stay till 8 or 9 o'clock. So this was the beginning of the end of our marriage. Mm -hmm. I, I was home with our daughter until she graduated from high school, which was in 2014. And her and I would have dinner together when she wasn't out with her friends or whatever. But then she went to college and my ex was still working the schedule. And I begged him, I begged him to come home earlier. He couldn't do it. He would tell me that he needed to stay later to finish all his work. And it was like him and another guy, maybe two other guys that were doing uh, computer repair. And he had to keep up. He had responsibilities. And I know mm -hmm. it was difficult for him to work when he was, you know, in a cubicle or with other people around. So that's why he stayed later and later. And our marriage began, began to change for the worse. And I became depressed and mm -hmm. I became so lonely when our daughter went to college and he tried, he tried to listen to my needs. I have to give him credit. He came home on Fridays earlier, like at eight instead of nine. Um, I even asked him if he would give me another day of the week, Thursday. And I think he came home at eight on Thursdays. But what would happen is on the weekends, he was sleeping in until two, three, four o'clock in the afternoon. Right. So all that time that you guys could have spent together, some quality time growing your relationship, he was actually sleeping those hours away. Yeah. And then he would go to bed. He would go to bed at four, five, six o'clock in the morning. And I would go to bed at, you know, 11 or 12. So even though he was physically in the house with you, you still were dealing with loneliness. Oh, it was horrible. And when I look back at some of the things that I wrote during that time, 
I couldn't understand why I was so lonely in a marriage with somebody that I still love mm-hmm. very much. But I really do believe that work took a toll on him. Mm-hmm. Again, I have no idea. He may be thriving now because, you know, he lives alone. He doesn't have to worry about um, a child or uh, a wife or any, you know, family responsibilities. But um, yeah, I screamed a lot. I was very upset. I gained weight. I wasn't taking care of myself. I was anxious. I was depressed. Um, I had physical and emotional challenges that I had never had in my life. And to be honest with you, Manisa, I think I was going through the beginning of menopause. Yeah. (laughs) It was like a perfect storm. Let's just add some (laughs) some gasoline onto the fire. Wow. I wouldn't have wanted to be around me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I know that he... You know, when we well, we decided, I, actually, I decided that I wanted to separate in 2016. And mostly, I'll, I'll be honest with you, and I want to be honest with our listeners. I wanted to know that there were other men that found me attractive, that were interested in me. Because I mm-hmm. felt like I was married to a man who loved me very much and who I still loved. But there was no connection yeah, ex- except for sex. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really important to share because our sex life was really good until we divorced. It was, I would say, fantastic for the most part. Um. (laughs) I I really, I want to park right there because for me, and I know every woman is wired very differently, but, you know, most of the things that we hear about the research for women and men, I think Billy Crystal, the comedian, says it best, is that men, women need a reason to have sex. Men just need a place, right. you know, <laughs> that's it. They just need a place to have it. Like, so, you know, with us, we have to have those emotional connections to, you know, become aroused and excited. But here you are telling us very clearly that there was a lot of disconnect in your marriage, but yet your sex life was thriving. So how was that possible? Okay. I, this is, I think this is really important for our listeners to hear. That was the only way that I felt connected to my ex. When we were behind closed doors, he was attentive. He was connected. He was all in a hundred percent. And it was very important for him to make sure that I was pleased that, um, that I was, and I became the priority. Okay. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about him just getting his rocks off. And mm-hmm. I couldn't understand, Manisa, why the second we left the bedroom, he became another person. Yep. yep. And I, I would say that to him. So, again, we got to remember, we didn't know we were neurodiverse. And so I kept trying. I thought, okay, if we keep having sex, other things in the relationship will change because sex is so good. And I'm enjoying our physical intimacy mm-hmm. so much. But I also realize now, looking back, that sex was a release for probably both of us. Mm -hmm. And we knew each other so well, we knew each other's bodies so well. And I realized that there might've been some routine that was very comforting for Mm -hmm. both of us during sex. Okay. And were you initiating Mona or was he initiating? Both of us, both of us. I, I think, um, 
he always used to say to me that he wanted me to initiate more, but I'll be honest with you. Um, because especially when he was working, he was, he could be so negative and he could be so wrapped up in whatever crisis he was dealing with in his head at the time. Um, it was difficult to get him out of that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if a man is stuck in his head, it's hard for him to perform. So absolutely. (laughs) I let him take the initiative on that since I took the initiative on so many other things Mm -hmm. or took the lead on so many other things. So, yeah, I'm listening now. Like, I don't know how you didn't just ball up in fetal position. You were trying so hard, Mona, just so hard to connect with your husband. You know, we, we talked at the beginning about this, this beautiful love story you guys had and this deep connection, how he was even reading your thoughts and knew that you were falling in love with him. You've, you've had, you've had a child now, but you had all these years of like trying to figure out like, how do we stay connected? We're using intimacy, you know, anything you can think of to connect with him. And in that moment, as you've explained to us, it's wonderful. But then the moment it's over, it's like a light, a light switch just clicks off yeah. and he goes right back to being disconnected. So right. I, I, I imagine you were like almost like in a state of rage with the frustration of what is happening, like yeah. not knowing what. So. When talk to us about the point in your relationship where you come into contact with uh, the word autistic or having autism. Okay. And so this is really um, thanks to Olga, who is the co-host of the first season. She was talking to me about her boyfriend at the time, who she said was neurologically different. And the Mm -hmm. more she talked, the more I recognized my ex. Mm -hmm. And I've said this in other podcasts. We were away for a weekend. Something happened. He was having a meltdown. And I had not seen this before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something had happened when we were uh, away for that weekend. And I just looked at him and I said, I think you're um, on the autism spectrum or I think you have Asperger's and I think you need to get assessed. I screamed it at him and he screamed back at me, called me all kinds of names. I didn't even recognize the man who was talking Uh to me. And we were separated at the time and we were trying to figure out if we could stay in our marriage. Again, we both really loved each other. We just didn't understand what was going on. And then he, that was in 2017, that was the summer of 2017, he said he would go get um, an assessment after many, many, many months of going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And when he made the first appointment, he canceled it. And I said, okay, well, then I'm done. I'm divorcing you. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, I, I, I got to figure something out. I got to figure something out. And he made another appointment. He went to go see the doctor. And the doctor basically said to him, it's very hard to diagnose adults. You're probably on the spectrum, but so what? Hmm. And, he came, and he came back and told me that. And I'm like, okay, so do you want to work on anything? And I think he had been living alone for, I guess it was about a year and a half at the time. He had his routine. He had his life. He was really, I think he was really happy and enjoying himself. He still loved me. I still loved him, but he wasn't going to really do any work. Mm -hmm. And the, the um, straw that broke the camel's back. And this is the end of the story. It was um, April of 2018. It was, the early morning hours, uh, right after the day after his birthday, 
Um, and I had been drinking. I had been eating a lot of carbs. Mm -hmm. I was attempting to go to sleep. I got woken up out of sound sleep at like 2.30 in the morning. I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, I called 911. And they came and told me my um, blood pressure was 70 over 40. And they needed, <gasps> to, ru- yeah, they needed to rush me to the hospital because I could be having organ damage or organ shutdown. Wow. I, uh-huh. I called him. He didn't answer the phone. Um, I left him a message and attempted to call him again. I said, they're taking me to the emergency room. I told him what had happened. I said, could you please meet me there? We were separated at the time. And you could tell he didn't want to, but he said he would. About an hour after I got to the emergency room, he showed up. He only lives about 10 minutes from the emergency room. He showed up. He was cold as ice, Manisa. Cold as ice. Mm -hmm. Didn't come and hold my hand. Didn't hug me. Didn't ask me how I was doing. Nothing. And I said, could you, could you hug me? Could you hold my hand? You know, and he just was stoic. And I said, Mm -hmm. if you're going to, if you're going to treat me like that, go home. And he screamed at me and he's like, I'm not going home. I'm already here. And I said, um, well, I'll just, I can just call my sister. He goes, no, I'm not going home. I'm not leaving. And then he got in his head. And a few minutes later, he screamed at me in the emergency room. I'm going to divorce you next week. <gasps> yeah. Oh. And, and I was waiting for the test results to find out what had happened. Thank God I didn't have a heart attack. I'm sure, you know, I don't know how much I had drank. I don't know how much I had, you know, carved out on. Um, and they said I was dehydrated and whatever. So, Thank God I didn't have a heart attack, but um, that was the that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And he had to take me home. He had to drive me home because we don't have Uber in our area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, "You're going to wait for me until I go inside and get my calendar." I said, "And we are going to go to the courthouse and file for divorce." And he goes, "No, you don't have to go with me." I said, "No, you have threatened me with divorce because you threatened me. I can't tell you at least." six to 10 times during the two and a half years we were separated. Uh I said, no, we're going and I'm picking the date and you're going with me. And we picked a date. We got the paperwork. We had it. We each had our side notarized and we met at the courthouse, paid the 400 and whatever dollar fee. We split it. Um, But prior to going in, we sat and talked for an hour, Manisa. And he was, he said to me, he said, if you had known when we separated that this is how it was going to end, would you have gone through with the separation? And I said, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I said, yeah. I, I, I was losing myself and I needed to find myself. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did date and he did date. He said dating was one of the worst things for him during the separation. He never should have done it. I didn't force him to date. Um, so it wasn't good for him, but it was really good for me. And then I said to him, um, you know, we talked about, we talked about Asperger's and we talked about our daughter and, um, you know, he thought that if she was on the spectrum that she should never be in a relationship. That's what he said to me. And I, I said to him, I said, I said, Rachel has had me as her coach for whatever number of years it is. And if she is on the spectrum she is going to do just fine because she's learned the relationship skills that i was trying Mm -hmm. to teach you in our marriage 
And he's like, I wish I would have had a mother like you. And I said, you didn't need a mother like me. You had a partner. Yeah. You had, you had a wife for 30 years mm-hmm. who was trying to help, you know, figure out this with you. It was one of the best conversations we had. And a month later, we went to the courthouse and we had to stand before a judge. I was having an anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. I had to leave the courtroom for a while to walk around, came back in. And was we Go ahead. I'm sorry. Was your anxiety due to the fact that you were maybe mulling over in your mind? You know, this is permanent. Like, this yeah. is, and, yeah. and am I making the right decision? Yeah. I did not want a divorce. Um, mm-hmm. But I was willing to work on a marriage he wasn't. Okay. And there was no way after that incident in the emergency room that I was going to continue because I had lost myself. I had literally lost myself. And I think that's what I want to tell our listeners. If you feel you're losing yourself in your relationship, that is a major, major, major red flag. You need to get help. You need to see a therapist. You need to see a coach. I actually went on Cymbalta and I'm actually getting off of it. Uh, next month and when I go to my OBGYN I've been on it since for for over four years it it helped me regulate the chemicals in my brain but until I changed the environment I was living in and experiencing during our separation it 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 didn't it didn't solve the problem Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. so yeah I did not want a divorce but I couldn't live like that anymore. Of course, of course. And you realize also that uh, what, what we all realize, no matter what relationship you're in, if one person wants the relationship and the other person doesn't, it's not going to be successful. Right. Unless, unless you just accept that you want someone, but that person doesn't want you. And again, I think in order to get to that acceptance, that's someone who has lost total value in themselves and I don't think that's healthy and you realize like not only do I love but I want to be loved amen and that's the part that you were missing right yeah I never doubted that we loved each other right I had, I had lost respect for him I had stopped trusting him he had lied to me um so many times mm-hmm. during our separation and I can't even tell you I mean, they're really personal things that he lied to me about. Mm-hmm. He had never lied to me in our entire marriage, in our entire time we were dating or living together. Never, ever, ever did I not trust him. During our separation, he promised me he would come back into the marriage. He would move back into our house. I was going to move into his apartment. And then he would go back on his word. And, you know, he told me he did things that he never did. You know, he lied so much. I never knew if I was going to get Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. And, and again, to our listeners, I will tell you, that is devastating. I mean, some people call it gaslighting. I don't think he meant to gaslight me. I think he was dealing with his own stuff mm-hmm. or not dealing with his own stuff. And it affected me every single day of my life. And now, yeah. now I'm finally at a place where I am doing so well and thriving and healed that I can do this podcast and I can share these stories and, you know, chuckle a little. If you had asked me these questions two years ago um, or, you know, right after our divorce, I would have been crying hysterically. Yeah. It's still too raw. Yeah, exactly. So, 
how did you, Mona, get closure? Because closure normally means that you come, both of both partners come to terms and they agree upon it and then they move on. But I don't think you guys ever agreed upon the terms. So mm-hmm. how did you get closure? For me, I had to come to accept that we had 32 years of love. Mm-hmm. An amazing daughter and so many amazing experiences together. I mean, before our daughter, we traveled together. We loved going to movies. We loved going to theater. We loved, you know, trying new cool restaurants. We loved getting together. Well, I loved getting together with my friends and he would, he would join me. We spent a lot of really quality time with family. However, um, I, I don't know that he was ever really being um, truly honest with me in our relationship. I think he was masking. Mm-hmm. I think he, the person that I saw during our separation was maybe more of who he was before we started dating. I think he had, um, I think he had a temper that he never showed me until our separation. And so what I had to do was realize that the man I fell in love with and was with for 32 years is not the man he was when we separated and then divorced. And I actually started dating um, other men and realized that what I had was with him. There were some really amazing things, but then there were some really dysfunctional things. Yes. And I didn't know. Right. I didn't know because we were, again, 21 when we met and 23 when we married. Mm -hmm. So the closure for me is I would love for us to be friends. Right now, we are not, I would say, on friendly terms. Um, I still feel like I would like to be friends with him. But, you know, it's his choice. Um, So he he, doesn't want to be friends with you? I don't think he does now. Okay. and I think, I think he, and again, I can't speak for him. I think he has always been a person who likes to kind of sweep things under the rug and not deal with conflict or confrontation. And um, he doesn't really want to deal with some of the things that uh, I've dealt with and worked through. Mm-hmm. from our marriage and the challenges we've had and you know he's an adult and that's his choice I don't trust him um, I don't think he's been honest with me or with other people and trust and integrity are critical for me for any friendship or relationship I have yes absolutely absolutely yeah. so I think you know I'm hearing this I'm always willing to examine my own thoughts that closure doesn't always mean that both parties have to agree. I think hearing you and explain your journey, closure means that you accept that the past could not have been any different. Mm-hmm. Like I agree. if you were to go back and say, okay, what could, what would I have, what would I do differently? Um, would anything have changed, Mona? Do you believe anything would have changed? I, I sometimes think about what would have happened if we had divorced after four years of marriage, but then mm-hmm. I wouldn't have had my daughter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a lot of really, really good times together. We really, really did. 
I wish, and I will tell this to our audience, I wish I had known we were neurodiverse earlier in our relationship because Mm -hmm. I know that my screaming and my way of communicating with him, while it was natural for me, because that's the kind of family I was raised in, where we screamed and we resolved conflict and we moved on, that was very, very uncomfortable for him. Okay. He asked me during our separation to stop screaming at him, which I did um, because he asked it of me. If he had asked it of me earlier, I would have done it, I think. Mm-hmm. But who knows? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I, other than that, I don't know that there's anything I would have changed because I am probably healthier emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every way possible healthier now than I have probably ever been in my adult life. And, and I, and I hear the joy and the, not even the joy. I hear the freedom in your voice when you say that, Yeah, that the Mona that you were in the, your relationship was not a fully expressed woman. No, but now you're free and you're open and it has nothing to do with your ex. That's not to say that he was intentionally causing you to be this way but when you were with him you weren't your best right and as I, you've, yeah go ahead no go ahead no i think you i mean you've clearly expressed that you still love him mm-hmm. i always and, will yeah and that you always will so this is not a situation of you know this was a horrible person and you know i was being abused that's not this situation nope. at all no nope, not at it all it is that who he is and who you are we're just diametrically opposed in many ways in our mm-hmm. communication, in our emotional needs, um, in our thinking processes. Mm-hmm. And without the knowledge of neurodiversity, I think we both maybe lost respect for each other's mm-hmm. traits. Yeah. I think he lost respect for mine. I lost respect for him, for his. And that's not a good way to be in mm-hmm. any relationship. But if we had known we were neurodiverse, either we would have ended the relationship on um, at a different time when we both maybe would have been um, in a better place emotionally and spiritually and mentally, or we might have worked together to resolve some of the communication um, and thinking and processing differences that we had that we didn't understand and would, Mm -hmm. you know, get into fights about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's really important for our listeners to know that. I agree. And I'm, I'm going to ask you this question and it's kind of a loaded question, Mona. So um, you may not even be able to answer it fully in this episode, but I want to know that now, you know, uh, that you've ended this, ended your marriage, we're with this person for over 30 years. What has being in a neurodiverse relationship taught you about love? Mm, that's a great question. I think the most important thing that it's taught me is that you have to know yourself and understand your needs, your wants, and your non-negotiables or boundaries. And you have to be able to meet your own needs, meet your wants, but communicate what you want in the love relationship you have to be able to communicate your boundaries and maintain your boundaries. And you have to be clear about your non-negotiables. 
if I can't trust somebody, I can't be in a relationship with them. Yeah. So if you lie to me once because you're trying to protect me, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. But if you lie to me repeatedly and I find out, which is what happened during our separation, I've lost trust in you and I don't know that I can ever get it back. Correct. And that's, that's what I've learned. I've got to love myself. I've got to be secure as a woman and as a person. And I'm not going to ever be perfect. Nobody is. Mm -hmm. But if I can't satisfy my wants and my needs and love myself, I can't be a good partner. Absolutely. And I think that's in any relationship. Yes, I agree. So I have one more question for you. So you're a woman now who is free to date whoever you want. If you were to enter into another newer diverse relationship, what would you do differently? Well, (laughs) I do think the man I dated for almost a year after my divorce, after my divorce is um, neurodivergent. Okay. And I was a very different partner in that relationship. Mm -hmm. I was very clear about what my boundaries were. Um, I held tight to them. And that is why our relationship ended. I would not take um I guess it might have been considered emotional abuse during meltdowns Mm -hmm. um and I knew what I needed and I communicated that Mm -hmm. and sometimes he heard me and sometimes he didn't and sometimes he communicated disrespectfully and sometimes respectfully um and I knew that this was not a person that I would probably be able to spend the rest of my life with. Yes. If he didn't accept what I saw with the meltdowns and the shutdowns, because they were repeated and he didn't want to face any of it. Um, I had said I would go for couples counseling because we, you know, we were getting um, our relationship was moving along. We had almost dated for a year and he wanted no part of that. Mm-hmm. So, So I knew that he was not going to be the right person for him. Again, I still love him too. Not in love with these men, but I love them. They will always have a special place in my heart. But um, yeah, and and to be honest with you, Manisa, I'm sure that probably most of the other men in my life in the future will (laughs) be on the spectrum, but there'll be a different version, you know, Uh, there'll be things that I loved about my ex and the man I dated for almost a year. And maybe they'll have more of the things that I wanted to have in those relationships, but didn't have. Yeah. And definitely this podcast has equipped you with so many resources and so many tools because we've had some amazing conversations and some phenomenal guests who are just very uh, trained and skilled in these type of relationships. Yes, it's been a joy. And so, Manisa, thank you. This has been so nice to share. And (laughs) again, it's like, you know, an hour and 15 minutes of a 32-year journey. I know. Uh, (laughs) I know. But I want to tell our listeners, if you have questions about what I experienced in my relationship or you want to ask Manisa questions about the relationship she's in now, feel free to send a DM to me on Instagram or email us. And that information will be in the show notes. Manisa, do you have anything else you want to say or any, anything else you want to ask? Like I always tell you, Mona, I am just so happy 
that you had the vision to start this podcast because not only has it just touched so many souls and so many lives, but it has definitely impacted my life and has caused me to have hope and to embrace my relationship um, for the future and to think about some of the challenges and ways that we can navigate through those challenges. And you're just doing a great work in the world. And I'm just so thankful to be a part of it. Well, thank you. I feel you're doing great work with me and I love that we have this partnership. So thank you. And happy holidays, everybody. We will see you in 2022. Yay! (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Manisa. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.